Good morning. As Jared just read over us, we'll be in Mark chapter 9. That's on page 844 on, in your pew Bibles. I want to look again this morning, uh, a lot like we did last week, at this moment in the ministry of Jesus where it seems very odd. Where Jesus' response is not his typical response. You, you looked at that last week. Uh, all of us ought to come to this text and, and scratch our heads and think, What is Jesus thinking? And so I want to look at it again uh, in a different way to see what Jesus is doing. You you know, what we know to be true about Jesus, he's always on mission. There's nothing that Jesus does that's peculiar to him, that's peculiar to us. And so we can often come to this text and texts like these and scratch our head and think, what is God doing or what is Christ doing? The greatest uh, answer to that is, Thank God, God knows what He's doing. Uh, I'm grateful for that. God is not up, He does not have a playbook. He's not walking through plays trying to figure out what the defense is doing so He can outmaneuver uh, with the offense. He's had a game plan since day one, uh, since the very first four words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. That sets God's sovereignty over all things. And that word all means all. There's nothing that's outside of the sovereignty of God. And so, Even this young boy is not outside the sovereignty of God. So I want to look at that this morning. There are no uh, notes. Uh, There's no outline this morning, just the way the text was. uh, For me, I thought there's no way I'm going to force an outline onto this text. So I'm going to kind of story tell us through this text. I'll give you the punchline from the very beginning. This story has nothing to do with the demon-possessed boy. We can come to this passage and think that this passage has everything to do with the boy that's demon-possessed. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is primarily about the Father. And so all of us in this room, my prayer has been this week that we can identify with the Father. I don't know about you, but often my faith wanes. Am I the only one? Okay, there's three of us. Not as lonely this week. And so I can wander through life and my faith in God will wane. And I love the honesty of this dad in this passage. And if if we're honest with ourselves this morning, all of us, not just the three of us this morning, struggle with believing. Like we desperately want to believe, do we not? Like there's a desperation for all that believe in Christ we have this desperation to believe. But if we're really, really honest, there's, there's times in our life that belief just seems impossible. And we want to say, how can you or how could you, God? And so I want to look at that in this text this morning. That's why the title of the message is Believe It or Not. That's up to us. We're either going to believe or we're not going to believe. But we must have the same cry that this father had that day. And so let's look at this text together. It says this in verse 14. And then it says, and when they came to the disciples. Notice this in that passage. We read that. At least I have. Maybe you're way smarter than me. I've always read that text as the disciples, as all 12 of the disciples. That's not true in this passage. 
there was only nine disciples that the people came to. Peter, James, and John, if you look just one or two verses ahead uh, in the passage, they had gone to see one of the greatest miracles to ever happen, the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. So Jesus, Peter, James, and John are on this mountain. And that leaves the nine other disciples by themselves at the bottom of the mountain. Now this ought to already be stirring something in our minds and hearts. Do you remember the other time in the Old Testament when a man went to the top of the mountain to see the glory of God? What happened to the people at the bottom of the mountain? They were a faithless generation. He's going to say that again in the text. So this, You can go back to look at Moses who was on the top of the mountain there at the transfiguration and Moses is able to see from the top of the mountain What's happening at the bottom of the mountain? A faithless generation. That's you and me. We're not on the top of the mountain with Jesus. You and I are way more like the crowd and the disciples down in the valley. And it says they came to the disciples. This crowd came around them, it says. And the scribes were arguing with them. How, what a cheap shot from the scribes, if you really think about it. They knew who was at the bottom of the mountain. They knew they looked around. They didn't see Jesus. So they knew they could take advantage of the nine disciples. If you go throughout the New Testament, through the Gospels, the, the, the Pharisees are always looking and plotting how to discredit what Christ was doing. So now they, they find their chance. They find their opportunity. Here's Jesus. And truth be told, maybe the three other more powerful disciples, Peter, James, and John, that leaves the weaker disciples kind of by themselves. So the, the Pharisees, like the brood of vipers they are, they're ready to strike. And they're ready to strike in front of the crowd to bring and discredit what Christ was saying he was all about. So if the Pharisees can discredit who Christ is to the crowd, then the crowd will what? Be more faithless and hopeless. The Pharisees were a very wise people. So they're looking to discredit. You see that throughout the Gospels. They always are looking to discredit what Christ said He would come to do. And then it says this in verse 15. And immediately, the crowd, when they saw Him, here comes Jesus coming off the mountain. And then all of a sudden, the crowd runs to Jesus. Well, many people have said this about this text, which is not true, that they saw the face of Jesus and the face of Jesus must have been glowing from being at the transfiguration. We know that's not true because he tells his disciples on the way down the mountain, hey, don't tell anyone about what just happened. So why would Jesus tell the disciples not to tell anyone he's going to show up with all the glory showing on his face? Well, they ran to him. Remember the news about who Jesus was, was spreading. They ran amazed and they greeted him. And then he asked them, the Pharisees, not the crowd, not his disciples. But now he puts all of his attention onto the ones who's bringing doubt. He says to them, what are you arguing with them about? And he's basically saying, what are you doing? What, what are you doing this for? 
What are you trying to take cheap shots at my children for? Before the Pharisees are able to answer, we see the shift in the conversation. And it says in verse 17, And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever this spirit comes upon him, seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Turn with me just three pages to the left. Mark chapter 6. This is going to be super important for us. Mark chapter 6, that's page 841 in your pew Bible. Jesus had already gathered the 12 disciples. And in this text, uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it says this. And he called the 12. Remember, that's who's at the bottom of the mountain. He called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And catch this. And gave them authority to do what? Over what? Now let's go back. So God, through Christ Jesus, has given His disciples the authority to do what they were unable to do. Now that ought to beg the question, what happened? We're going to get to that at the very end of the text. But that's important to notice. That God had already, through Christ, given His disciples the authority to cast out demons and they were unable to do it. So keep that in your front pocket. I'm going to get to that. Write that down. Slip it. Slip that note into your front pocket. They were unable to do what God had given them authority to do. And this is where it's like, really, Jesus? Look what he says. And your disciples could not cast them out. They were unable. And he answered them. Who's the them? It's not the crowd. He's not speaking to the crowd. He's not speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking back to his disciples. And look what he says to his disciples. Oh, you faithless generation. You faithless people. How long am I going to be with you? How long do I have to bear with you? What Jesus is saying how many different times do I have to show you my great power? This is getting old. Like, you faithless people. Now connect that, keep that word faithless in that front pocket with the note I just gave you. So he rebukes them for not being able to do what he commanded them to do because they're faithless. And then with this indignation, that's what the way he says it, we don't see that in the text. Uh, we see that in the original text. He says to the disciples, not to the dead, bring him to me. Bring him over here. Like what? Like where's the compassion? Like Jesus, this is the boy that every time a wicked demon seizes him, it throws him into the water, it throws him into the fire. Like he had to have burn marks all over his body. Like you would think there'd be some compassion. 
that Jesus would have had. Bring him here, he says. And they brought the boy to him. And catch this, verse 20. And when the Spirit saw who? Him. Look at the, what the presence of Jesus does. Jesus has not spoken to the demon yet. But as soon as the boy with the demon is brought in front of Jesus, it does what? The demon freaks out and throws the boy into convulsions because of the presence of the power of Christ. He has not spoken a word to the demon yet. All they have to do is bring this little boy in front of Jesus, and Jesus' pure presence brings the power to invoke something in a demon. And yet I wonder for you and me, how often is our response like that of the demon? Do we respond in the presence of a holy God? If we can look at this demon and point the finger, but we ought to look at ourselves. If the demons respond to the presence of Christ, should we not as believers have some response to the presence of Christ? Like when you walk in these doors every Sunday morning, you and I ought to be aware that the presence of God is in this place. It ought to drive us to a response. Like it ought to stir something in our heart. Because God's presence is with God's people. When God's people gathers, He tells us, I am with you. What is our response when we gather in the presence of God? Take it or leave it. Or does something happen in us? My prayer is that our spirits would in some way convulse. Because it stirred our affection. Because God is doing something in our midst that's unexplainable. It's the presence of God. Read the, the small book by Brother Lawrence, Practicing the Presence. It's a small book. Uh, by, his name is Brother Lawrence. He's an old, old teacher. Read that small book. But it will help us understand what does it mean to be in the presence of God. I'll take it a step further. If you're a believer, you are always in the presence of God. You know why? Because God's presence is always in you. But how often do we not live our lives in response of the presence of God? I could just do a whole sermon just on that one little verse. The Spirit saw him and immediately it convulsed the boy. And he, the boy, fell to the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Imagine that for a moment. Just imagine the scene. They asked Jesus to bring the boy so Jesus could heal the boy the, the moment that the demon gets in the presence of Je Jesus, here's this boy flopping around like a fish out of water, foaming at the mouth. You've ever seen anyone with a grandma seizure before? That's what it's like. It, it's scary. 
I remember, I could tell you where I was at when it happened, what game I was watching. It was uh, the, the finals, the, the NCAA championship finals back in 92. And my mom had a seizure right in front of me. I was a little kid. That, that terrified me. So I can only imagine what's happening now with this dad looking on to the boy, Jesus looking at the boy, the disciples looking at the boy, the crowd looking at the boy, the, the Pharisees looking at the boy. But look at Jesus' response. Like, what would you and I do? Remember, Jesus at any moment has the power to heal instantly. But look what Jesus does. That's why it's not about the boy, it's about the dad. So here's this boy flopping around on the ground. And Jesus turns to the boy. No, no, that's not what his text says. He turns to who? The father. And asks the father a question. How long has this been happening to him? Like, hey Jesus, that's kind of irrelevant, isn't it? You're not a doctor per se. Like you don't need to take. You know when you go to the doctor, and they they give you that whole list to check off. Like, are you allergic to this? Allergic to that? that? Like that. When I read the text, I'm like, Jesus. Like we're not in the doctor's office. Just do something with the boy that's flopping around. We don't need an examination on the boy. It's obvious what's going on in the boy. What are you asking this for? What Jesus is doing is drawing out the dad. Like Jesus is making it not about the boy. Because Jesus knows what he's about to do with the boy. But Jesus knows if I don't address what's going on in the dad, it won't matter what happens to the boy. And so he says to the dad, how long has this been happening for? You remember when we started just a few moments ago? Like where's Jesus' compassion? Well, now all of a sudden he shows up with compassion. Where you and I, I'm like, man, just heal him. But Jesus is wanting to do something in the heart of the Father. Like, hey, this is not just about the boy, but it's about your heart. What has this been like for you? It's what Jesus is often asking. What's your heart been like to watch this over and over and over and over again, Jesus is trying to draw out the heart of the Father. He's trying to expose something in the dad. Then he says this. From childhood. This has been happening his whole life. Now it says in the text, the original text, you're going to see this word, he cries out. I believe when the dad said those words from childhood, that's when the tears begin to roll down his face. Like there's something about the heart of a dad, a heart of a mom with a child. Right, parents? Can anything ever happens to your child? Does it not just grip you to, to a place you can't even explain? Like you, you don't have words for it sometimes. So here's this dad looking at Jesus 
watching and hearing his son flop around as he's having a seizure. And this has been happening his whole life. A long time, Jesus. A long time. Since childhood. And then he begins to explain what it's been like since childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire. Anyone ever had a child be burned severely? One of my bosses, his son, uh, I think it was three years ago, was at a fireworks show. And he fell back into one of those large rings, fire pits, and burned him severely. Think of Miss Opal when she was burnt. Like, just that, the agony of that. Like, that didn't just happen once to this child. That didn't just happen once to this father. That happened over and over and over again. Not only did he get burned, he says, but he was drowning at times. He fell into the water. Like, you think about two ways I don't want to die. Drowning and fire. Those are two ways I don't want to go out. But this dad is watching this over and over and over again since childhood. Can you imagine the agony as a, as a parent? And then he says these words. And it often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Man. Like the dad has enough insight to know that the boy's demon possessed and have enough insight that all this demon wants to do is kill his child. And for his whole life, he's been watching the son go through torment and agony because a demon wants to kill him. That has to be heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And then the man says this. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Like remember last week, like this is their last resort. If you can do anything. We've already brought them to your disciples. They couldn't do anything. So I have doubt that you could do anything. If you can do anything. Just have compassion on us and help us. And then look what Jesus does. He gives them an English lesson right in the middle of. What? Like We're really going to like. Pick apart one little word? But Jesus says to him, if you can, like one two-letter word, we're going to talk about that? If you can. Like again, Jesus, hey, he's flopping around. Do something if you can.
notice what the man doesn't say. He doesn't say, if you're willing. Hey, if you're willing to do something. Remember, there's often times that people come to Jesus, if you're willing to heal me. Here's the heart of the man. The heart of the man doesn't fully trust that Christ is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. See, that's what I'm saying. This story is about the dad, not about the son, because there's something going on in the heart of the father that Jesus must go after, and it's that place of doubt and faithlessness. If you can, and then look what Jesus says. It's not about whether if I can or not. That's Todd's version. All things are possible for the one who believes. So now he's saying, it's not about what I can do or not do. It's really about your belief and what you believe I can do. How often does Jesus say that to us? I wonder for us this morning how true in our lives, our actions, speak those words, if you can. Like, God, if you can heal my marriage. God, if you can heal my fill-in-the-blank. God, if you can. The question is not if God can. The question is, is God willing? God can do all things. That's why I started the message. That the very first four words of the Bible are true today, just like they were true. In the beginning, God. God is sovereign over everything. God can do all things. If by the very words of God He spoke creation into existence, He can cast out a demon. He can heal your marriage. He can heal your friend. He he can do all things. But our lives, my fear is our lives, live as if we challenge God with the if you can. What if you cans do you have in your life today? Because he's going to give you the answer. Next. All things are possible for those who believe. You talk about one of the most misused verses in all the Bible. This one in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you go and just read Philippians 4, you'll know that's not what Paul is talking about. We can't do all things. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when when we're insufficient, we still have the sufficiency of Christ in us to do things we thought we couldn't do. What he's saying here in this text is all things are possible for those who believe. This is not a passage about name it, claim it. Just if you believe that you'll get a million dollars in your bank account, I promise you, you're probably not going to get a million dollars just if you believe. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying to this man is, is do you really believe in me? Not in what I'm going to give you, but do you have belief in me and what I can do, not what you can do? So when, when we come to this text, all things are possible for those who believe. It's what are we putting our belief into? Are we putting our belief into what we hope God answers in our prayer? Or are we putting our belief into the one who can answer our prayer? Because some, sometimes, most of the times, if you're like me, the way he answers my prayer is not the way I'm praying my prayer. But do I believe that God can and will do what he says he'll do? And that's primary to glorify himself. Do I believe that to be true? 
So this is not a name it, claim it verse. And then the honesty of the Father. The honesty of the Father is not, I don't believe or can believe about the healing of my son. It's, what do I really believe to be true about you? And he says, and he cries out, it says. The original text, it says he cries out with tears. He says, I believe. But oh, help my unbelief. That ought to be the cry of our heart every single day as believers. Oh God, I believe. But if I'm honest, there's a place of unbelief in my heart. Right? Like if I'm really honest, there's always a place in my heart about unbelief. I believe it goes all the way back to my original parents, Adam and Eve in the garden. The moment they sinned, they entered unbelief. Remember how the serpent tricked them. Did God really say? He tricked them about their unbelief about what God had really said. And that's played out for the rest of history. Satan knows if he can trick our belief into unbelief, then we'll get what happened to the disciples here in this text. Our belief will become self-sufficient rather than God-dependent. He says, oh, but, but help my unbelief. And then Jesus saw the crowd coming and running together and he rebuked the unclean spirit saying, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you because I can come out of him and never enter him Again, I can. he's going to show the man what he can do and what he will do. Well, the demon has one last hurrah. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse. The demon comes out and now everyone looks on this boy like he's dead. I'm telling you, God is always on mission through Christ. We're going to see that in a moment. This moment for the disciples, for the Pharisees, and for the crowd is a foreshadow of what he's about to do on the cross. Because after the cross, his body is like a corpse in a tomb. But he's going to show us his power, his resurrecting power by what he does with the boy who's laying there dead, many scholars say. If you look throughout the Gospels, there's a moment that there's People that are dead, they use the same wording as this moment. So my theory is that this boy has died and now Christ is going to raise him from the dead. But it's a foreshadow of Christ's power over death. His ultimate power over death. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. The power of Christ is what raised that boy to life. In Matthew's account and Luke's account, it says it this way, he was immediately healed and given back to the Father. Remember what happened to Christ when he was immediately resurrected. He went back to the Father. And so, there's this reunion of a healed boy. And he's immediately healed. The demon never comes back. 
There's amazement in the crowd. You read that in Matthew's account. And now he's going to address the disciples. In verse 28. And when he had entered the house with his disciples, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast this demon out? Because just a few days ago, you gave us all authority to cast him out. So what happened in us? And Jesus says, this is what happened. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You know what prayer does more than anything else? It shows us what our true faith is. Remember what he said to them just a few verses prior? You faithless generation." Our prayer life will show us how strong our faith really is. You see what happened with these disciples. They rested on the assurance that God had given them authority in chapter 6. But they got self-dependent on that authority rather than Christ-dependent that took them to their knees to pray continually. I wonder for us, church, how many times in our life God has given us something, allowed something to happen in our lives, We get strength in that, but then we hold on to that strength without ever going back to Christ through dependence in prayer. See, it's not the prayer part that he's talking about. It's the faithlessness on their dependence on God that is the issue. And so I'd ask you this morning three questions in closing. The first one is this. What has God called you to that you are now doing on your own strength? Is it your marriage? Is it your job? Is it raising your kids? That's one for me right now. Like, What has God called me to that He's empowered me to that, that I had seasons of growth in but I've gotten more dependent on my self-reliance than my dependence on God. So what has God called me to that I'm now doing on my own? The second one would be this. What does my prayer life look like? What and how am I praying? Which leads me to the third one. Do my prayers line up with His glory? Because I'm praying for my marriage. I'm praying for my kids. I'm praying for my spouse. I'm praying for my friend that has cancer. Am I praying just for them to be healed? For them to be restored? Or ultimately at the end of my prayer, can I honestly say, God, no matter what happens, it's for Your glory and for my good. You see, that's what happened to the disciples. That's what was happening in this man. They had a faithless faith and they got dependent on themselves. And even the man said, I don't know, God, if you can do this. So see, we're either like the man 
And we don't really believe he can. Or we're like the disciples that, man, we've gotten the call from God and now we do it all on our own. You're one of the two. Who are you in this text this morning? Who am I in this text? But let it be said what Jesus said. If you can, oh, God can and God will. He is all-powerful. He's sovereign over all things. Let us pray.